We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners. This is The Future This Week. On Sydney Business Insights, I'm Sandra Peter. And I'm Kai Rima. Every week we get together and look at the news of the week. We discuss technology, the future of business, the weird and the wonderful, and things that change the world. Okay, let's start. Let's start. Today on The Future This Week, preserving our digital heritage and the national identity crisis caused by consumerism. I'm Sandra Peter, I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima, professor at the Business School and leader of the Digital Structure Research Group. So Sandra, what happened in the future this week? There were actually lots of interesting stories this week. KFC is going to sell plant-based fried chicken. That sounds just wrong. Well, we could have a whole debate of whether plant-based is chicken. And we've had these conversations before on the podcast about... Fake milk, yeah? Yep. There was a very interesting story about Kenya warming up to water hyacinths as a source of biofuel. And we decided not to do this because I can't pronounce whatever this plant is called. And it's a really invasive species, so finding some use for it is really good news. There was also a story that Netflix has shipped 5 billion discs, you know, remember DVDs? Interesting aspect here is that Netflix is still doing this, which I didn't know. Neither did I. There's still about two and a half million people, subscribers, who regularly get DVD movies in the post. That, of course, compares to about 150 million streaming customers. But, you know, that's an interesting one because we shouldn't forget that while the world is going digital, not all of the world is going digital at the same speed. Well, speaking of going digital and Netflix, Netflix is also taking a turn towards human-driven curations. They're launching something called collections, where you will have actual people, not algorithms, curating. Anyone ask the algorithms how they feel about that, being displaced by humans? Yeah, I think some algorithm just lost their job. And then there's stories about Uber and Facebook and the usual suspects, which we've done on the podcast before. But the stories we're going to discuss today are actually quite different. We're going to discuss MySpace, and most of our listeners probably can't even remember what that was. Apparently it's, a, or was, a social network. It was a social network that had more users than Google at that point. It was bigger than Facebook. And we're going to discuss the wonderful, weird world of consumerism and the effects consumerism has on the national identity of the US as a country and, by extension, many other Western countries. But let's start with our first story. What MySpace lost. So this one appeared a couple of days ago in the Australian version of Gizmodo. And it related the botched corporate server migration that recently seemed to have cost the world 50 million songs by 40 million artists that had been posted to MySpace between 2003 and 2016, which is the vast majority of its library. And diehard MySpace users, the article reports, compared the loss to the burning of the Library of Alexandria and others just rejoiced at teenage angst being cremated. So this MySpace incident was first confirmed back in March, and there's an article in The Verge, which we're going to put in the show notes, which reports that 
all the music and also photos and videos uploaded between 2003 and 2015 to the MySpace website has been lost in this so-called botched server migration. And again, just to put this in context for our listeners, MySpace was the largest social networking site in the world from 2005 to 2008. It was acquired by News Corp back in 2005 for about $580 million. Not a great investment in hindsight, as it turned out, because they did sell it in 2012 for a meager $35 million. You can do the math on that. But at its height, this was around 2006, it had surpassed Google as the most visited website in the United States. And all up, it had more than a billion registered users. So why are we talking about MySpace, a defunct social network that just happened to delete a whole bunch of songs? Why care about this? What does this tell us? So first of all, it serves as a warning for all of us who have our digital lives on digital platforms and who do not keep local backups. So this can happen basically, right? So platforms are under no obligation to keep our stuff forever and platforms come and go. Even big ones. Yeah. And this stuff now apparently is lost forever. So 50 million songs, most of them self-recorded, each one of them maybe not the best version of our history. But our history nonetheless. So the article asked the question of why preserve all this stuff on the internet? For example, who should care about old version of the Encarta Encyclopedia, formerly a Microsoft product? And the answer to that is because they are a cultural heritage. They have value in tracing the history of how certain bits of knowledge emerged, or in the case of MySpace indeed, how certain music genres emerged, how certain bands emerged, where they have their heritage, who people used to hang out with, how local music communities evolved and how certain genres came about. And it is artifacts such as these songs that allow us to access our history. If you think back of what we used to access medieval times, it's just the things that managed to survive fires and wars and destruction or that people or institutions decided to keep through which we now read our histories. But with these platforms, we have an opportunity to not just preserve individual artifacts. So in this instance, you know, individual songs. So if every artist had their songs on their local hard disks, which in this instance they don't, we might say, okay, all the artifacts are preserved. But in case of platforms such as MySpace, they provide much more than that because they have the connections between the artists, between the music groups, they have the friendship networks. And so the value is in this collective body of knowledge when it's been put together as a repository, as a living history where we can see when things were uploaded, when things were recorded, who recorded with whom, who was friends with whom. And the article actually reports on some of those instances where people were able to trace local music histories in Chicago, especially when it comes to certain genres such as emo, metal, crunk, trap, drill, pop rap, and psychedelic soul. 
But similarly, you could think about tracing fashion trends on Instagram or culinary trends on Facebook or the way fan fiction develops around Harry Potter or the aesthetic of coffee shops through latte art hashtags. Hashtag van life. That's a whole cultural movement that is documented on Instagram. And that only exists on Instagram. Yeah. So if that was to disappear, we might find some, you know, pimped up camper vans. But the whole significance of this in the greater conversation of a society would be lost. So as much of our cultural life revolves around digital platforms, questions need to be asked. What of this is actually worth preserving? And the less we individually own that data and it sits on these platforms, the less we're in charge of actually doing this ourselves. Because let's remember, many people just keep their photos on Instagram or on Google Photos. We stream all of our music. We don't own it anymore. The same thing with movies, with Netflix, where we no longer have copies of our music or our movies or our digital selves. And let's not forget that, especially in case of smaller communities and smaller websites, people invest a lot of time and energy in curating these special interest repositories that then serve as public goods for everyone to enjoy. And you had a good example of a close curation of such a repository in the music industry. Yes, the example that I want to bring up is that of an underground BitTorrent repository called Oink. The full name was Oink Pink Palace, and it's a really odd and curious case of a membership-only platform that was run by a 21-year-old named Alan Ellis at the time, and we're talking 2004 here, a website dedicated to cataloging and collecting pretty much the complete history of music in high quality. So this guy took over a website that was previously dedicated to sharing movies and all kinds of files and came up with a set of really tight rules around what was allowed and what wasn't on the website. So for example, in order to download music via this BitTorrent repository, one had to become a member with real name, real email addresses, IP addresses, and in order to download, one had to commit to actually upload material. So whenever someone wanted to download something, they had to also upload something, which gave an incentive to find more music that wasn't actually already available on the repository. And music had to be uploaded in really good quality. So that was the time just after Napster. There was a lot of low-quality MP3 floating around the internet, which is what this community was not interested in. They wanted high-quality MP3, properly tagged with all the artist information, or even better, better sound-quality file formats, such as FLAC, for example, which is a lossless sound format. Long story short, over time, this repository ended up being, according to many of the users involved, one of the most complete music repositories in the history of mankind, having links to files of bootleg recordings, concert recordings, underground recordings, rare collections of vinyl recordings, a lot of things that were not available in normal music stores or indeed commercial online platforms such as iTunes and later Amazon. So it became a really amazing socially curated collection of music that did not exist anywhere else. 
And for those of you who are interested in the Oink case, this is presented at length in the book How Music Got Free by Stephen Witt. We're going to put the link in the show notes. A really fascinating history of recorded music, the internet, piracy, and all the related stories around it. So whatever happened to Oink? Well, Oink pretty much got shut down and deleted when Alan Ellis was made a example of online piracy and was charged by the UK government for piracy, of which he was later acquitted because he merely ran a directory server. A whole different discussion we're not going to go into. Exactly. But the long story short, this amazing repository, the outcome of years and years of free labor was pretty much destroyed in an instant at the time. So what did we lose? We basically lost a good part of the history of music, which provides the context for how music evolved and how recorded music in particular evolved, rare recordings, and also a collective understanding of the significance of music at that time. Which reminds me of this great scene in Star Trek Beyond from 2016. Let's make some noise. Obviously, we're far in the future here, and the context of recorded music has been lost. Only some songs have survived. So Beastie Boys' sabotage now counts as classical music. Exactly, as this is probably the only genre left. So if we agree now that there is a lot of things on the internet that are worth preserving... And a lot of shit on the internet as well. A lot of noise, a lot of exhaust, a lot of pollution that is not worth preserving. But at the same time, that is the point. You could argue that a lot of this music that is now lost was just noise and it was insignificant. But there's two arguments to this. What is insignificant to you and me might have had a lot of significance for individual users. And the article mentions some of those distraught users who had lost loved ones whose music was on there and memories were on there. But also that sometimes the value is in the collection, as we said. So the noise might actually have certain value. So then the question is, how do we go about preserving this? Yeah, and whose job is it? Now, we could argue that it's up to everyone, first of all, to back up their own data. But that raises certain issues, first of all. I can certainly not buy a phone that's got enough storage for all my pictures. Yeah, and some platforms such as MySpace didn't actually allow simple downloads of all your files and recordings. And there's also all the stuff that we're streaming online now. So getting stuff off these platforms might be problematic and getting it onto your computer. But that's also the problem here. For most people using the internet today, using platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, and many other platforms... Their access and often sole access is via a smart device, an iPad, tablet, smartphone. And so the idea of backing up data to a computer hard disk is not just beyond the life world and knowledge of most people. It's also beyond the means of most people. 
So then it could be down to institutions, for instance. And there's certainly institutions such as the Library of Congress and... They back up Twitter. Twitter and other platforms that have official public significance. But it's limited to just a few high-profile platforms and data collections. And it's then down to volunteer groups. And there is indeed quite a number of initiatives that, again, rely on the free labor and enthusiasms of people to preserve some of that. A bit like Wikipedia, right? Exactly. And so one of them is called the Internet Archive. And indeed, recently, it uploaded 490,000 tracks from MySpace recorded between 2008 and 2010 that was collected by an independent research project. So they were recovered because they had been stored outside of the MySpace platform. And the archive team also maintains a project called Death Watch, where they maintain a list of extinct or endangered large websites which they then make a priority to keep copies of. So that's things like GeoCities, if anyone remembers that, or 15 years of Encyclopedia in Carta and 115 million accounts of Friendster and millions of rare tracks on WhatCD. And while these community platforms present some solution, they're also quite fragile because they, again, depend on individuals driving it. They could be bought by commercial entities or indeed they could suffer uh, data loss themselves. So at the moment, the preservation of our cultural digital heritage is really quite a mess. So it could come down to you. Or me. (laughs) What are you doing to preserve our digital cultural heritage? Or as the researchers of the independent MySpace project said, They, that is the platforms, do not care about you or your stuff. Please keep local copies of your shit. So our second story for today comes from the New York Times and it's titled The New Spiritual Consumerism by Amanda Hess. And Amanda takes consumerism to court, or that is a form of consumerism that in her eyes tries to find a meaning in consuming what is the right products in the right ways. And she paints a picture by launching of the television series Queer Eye, which is of course a Netflix reboot of an earlier show which also aired in Australia called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, where And I quote, five queer experts in various aesthetic practices conspire to make over some helpless individual. So people with a background in fashion, design, food, grooming and culture help what is usually a lost male individual make over their life by learning to purchase the right products, to dress in the right way, to eat the right food and to be into the right cultural stuff. And so the argument goes. And the article brings up a range of other similar shows and initiatives, things like The Logic of Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow's luxury brand. Is it wrong if the word bullshit pops into my head right now? Um, Slightly, but let's move on to Marie Kondo, who's also become a Netflix personality after writing a best-selling book that suggests that objects don't just make us feel good. They have feelings themselves and teaches people how to 
find joy in the things you love but getting rid of other things and who has turned the folding of tea towels into a spiritual activity. And even Kim Kardashian and Kanye West are now launching a celebrity church so they're also turning towards the spiritual. And on and on the article decries the fact that materialism now also has to become meaningful and says that all of these things are a triumph of consumer spectacle just dressed up in spirituality. And so the article goes, and it's quite easy to take this argument and call bullshit on a lot of what is happening in society. Or hard for some of us who love some of these shows. But we want to point out that it is easy to be condescending and patronizing and, you know, look down on consumerism when we all live in this same society. And we want to point out that this is slightly missing the point here. But what if this is not just old materialism getting a new look or people finding new ways of selling you even more things, weighing them down with spiritual significance? What if this is really a pushback against consumerism in the only way that it can happen in societies such as the American one? And here is where we want to bring in a very interesting article that we've also come across this week. Also in the New York Times, coincidentally. Titled, The American Economy is Creating a National Identity Crisis. And so Tim Wu, a law professor from Columbia University, in this article makes the point that for many people, the US has always been a great place to buy stuff, to consume. But at the same time, the American society, the American economy has a terrible reputation as a place to work. Indeed, in the US, there's no real vacation. There's really no sensitivity to any type of work-life balance. Business hours are all hours of the day and night. Workplaces are not necessarily great places to hang out. There's corporate surveillance. There's also the eroding of employment relationships in favor of the gig economy. Under this casual observation, he actually identifies something much deeper and more problematic at play, which is the way in which the U.S. economy has been built over the last 40 years. And he makes a very interesting point in that if you look at American economic policy since the 1980s, it has placed two things at its center, cheaper prices for the consumers and maximizing returns for the shareholders. So shareholder value and consumerism underpin economic policy and indeed the national economic identity in the US, whereas previously policy might have treated people predominantly as producers, as people with an intent to manufacture and create and build things. In the last 40 years, it has markedly shifted towards understanding people as mainly consumers and shareholders. And that has also driven, of course, inequality, where indeed those two groups are increasingly separate. A few people own the most and the rest in society work for survival and for consuming and buying things. The article makes the point that for most of American history, it would have been really strange to suggest that buying things as opposed to making them or trading them was in any way deserving of the highest regard in the economy or that the availability of cheap goods should be a major focus of economic policy. If people are farmers, if people are craftsmen, if people are merchants, then their identity is quite different from the one that we put forward today. 
which has buying things at the center of it and owning things as deserving of the highest regard in the economy. So that policy shift from focusing on things like trade policy or the protection of liberties as necessary for small farmers or craftsmen or merchants to do business to the rise of the consumer has only come about in the last century. And if you look at the 70s and 80s, this prioritization of consumers has also coincided with the decline of farming and with the spread of mass production, but also with the birth of marketing and advertising. And so Tim Wu locates a number of problems in this rampant consumerism, chiefly among them the inequality, but also things like loneliness and mental health problems, which stem from a neglect of other significant identities of people such as employees, as business owners, family members, or indeed citizens. But he locates good news in the fact that not only has there been an increasing pushback against shareholder value as the only economic metric for a company's success, there is now pushback from the political class against this understanding of economic policy. A lot of the Democratic candidates in the primary race run on platforms that offer alternatives in the way of dealing with societal problems like large corporations, Andrew Yang proposing universal basic income. So there's different ways to rethink what this society should be about. And indeed, it gives us a different explanation for this rise of new spiritual consumerism rather than this triumph of consumer spectacle and of trying to infuse now the things we have with spirituality. It is a pushback in the only space that economic policy now allows and the prioritization of buying things over anything else allows in that the things we own now have to afford or create the space for more meaningful lives. So in the absence of an alternative economic model, this seems to be the only response to recover meaning from inside of consumerism. And so it will only be over time to actually come to a new understanding and maybe to a more holistic understanding of what a society is there for and that the society is more than simply the economy that revolves around shareholders and consumers. And this is where the significance of the original story lies. And in that respect, this is a good news story, not a bad news story. This is actually a pushback. It's not actually digging deeper into the consumerism rabbit hole. And this is all we have time for today. See you soon. On the future. Next week. This week? Yes, but next week. On the future this week. Next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This was the future this week. Made possible by the Sydney Business Insights team and members of the Digital Disruption Research Group. And every week right here with us, our sound editor Megan Wedge, who makes us sound good. And keeps us honest. Our theme music was composed and played live on a set of garden houses by Lindsay Pollack. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online on Flipboard, Twitter, or sbi.sydney.edu.au. If you have any news that you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi.sydney.edu.au. Thank you.